Welcome, everybody, to It's Your Call with me, Karen Medland, and Andrew Richardson. And today we have our special guest, Janet Gear. So welcome, Janet. Thank you. So today, Janet is with us to talk about several things, her call to ministry and a very special ministry that she's been called into and the amazing book that has come out of her ministry and her observation of ministry and the life of the United Church of Canada. So we're excited to have her here on It's Your Call with myself and Andrew. So welcome, everybody. Janet, we normally start at the very beginning. So maybe you'd share with us your sense of call to ministry and how that developed over time and who were some of the touchstones along the way. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. When you ask the question about a call to ministry, I have a very vivid picture in my mind of my own congregational minister when I was in my earlier mid-20s, I guess, asking me if I had ever considered going into ministry. And I do remember my response because I remember his face. And it was just a spontaneous response. I said, but I am in ministry. And I didn't mean to be arrogant. Like I, That was a genuine response. And at the time, I was deeply involved in ecumenical social justice work. I had worked as an animator for Project Plowshares and was working at the time with an ecumenical group, the Christian Task Force on Central America in British Columbia. So my comment, really, when I think back on it, was more a a reflection on the genuine sense of vocation that lay ministry and ecumenical social justice ministry provides. There was no sense that it was a second-rate kind of way of serving the church, certainly, but also not a preliminary ministry from which you would kind of graduate or something like that. So that really was where I found my sense of place in the church but and my identity, um, but also was living out my sense of call, very honestly. So in a way, I could say I'd already been called when he asked me that question, if you think of call that way. And if you think of call as I do, not really necessarily a professional orientation sense of call, but, but the understanding call is kind of that holy beckoning into the fullness of your own life, which is how I understand it. And so that was the way that I had experienced that beckoning, obviously, through my childhood raised in the United Church, and through my young adult life, is actually really, it's really beautifully articulated in a poem by David White, I think it's called Sometimes, Sometimes is the first word anyway. And uh, he writes about the questions that have no right to go away. And I think that that was the dialect of call for me in my own life as a young adult, being exposed to the injustices and inequities of our time and having a community, the United Church and the Ecumenical Church, a community with whom to face into those and to respond to those. And that was how I was both called, call and community always coming together, right? Like called into a piece of work or into a conversation and into a community. So that was where I was in my early 20s when my minister asked if I would consider going into ministry and I was kind of astounded. But at a certain point, the work that I was involved in, that social justice work, kind of 
got ahead of my spiritual strength and maturity to do it, honestly. Mm. And I felt drawn to a theological study, mostly as a spiritual exercise. I wanted to study Christian ethics. I wanted to have the strength of spirit and the theological underpinning to continue to do the work that I was doing. So it was never an intention to go into congregational ministry, but seminary does have a way of barking that call. But when I was at a theological school, I have, um, you asked me who, who some of the people were. Well, I mean, the community, obviously, I've already spoken of that, you know, and whether that was the division of world outreach or whoever, like when I was in a room full of people who were attending with their hearts and minds to the matters of the day, those were the people, not individuals, but communities. But I was also a steward at the World Council of Churches. And so the voice that spoke most directly to me there was Dorte Azula, as a post-Holocaust theologian and a Westerner, speaking about taking responsibility for historic events and current ones and what it means. The theme of the World Council at that time was Jesus Christ, life of the world. And she reflected on, I have come that you'll have life and life abundantly and ask the question, uh, what does that mean? Collectively, what does it mean to side with life? So that question never left me. What does it mean to side with life? And so that was the question that I took with me to seminary. I studied philosophy. I was avoiding all of the ministry courses. I was avoiding even theology. I was in philosophy. And <laughs> Sister Woodward in the Dominican school, I was at the GTU in Berkeley. And she said to me, Janet, I understand what your questions are, but you will not be able to ask them in this field. You must get into theology. And I thank her so much for that. She was right. And I discovered when I got into that field that it is just millennial long conversation about what it is to be human in relationship with God in facing the realities of every time. And it was where I wanted to be. And I never wanted to leave, honestly. It's a beautiful conversation and a life-giving conversation. And it's a conversation for people like me who carry questions that have no right to go away. So I happily would have stayed there, but did move back home to Canada eventually after 10 years and then found myself at BST after that. That's a long answer, Karen. Andrew, that's a long, that's a long answer. <laughs> long answers are good. I just want to jump in at Andrew and just say, we're going to talk a little bit about your life as a writer in a few minutes, but just listening to you talk, Janet, you can see, the, understand your or I'm hearing, I should say, a deep love of the language that can express our faith. Mm -hmm. Some of the phrases you've used just in that piece where you talk about your own call. I love this. I've got to get this right. And I'm going to write it down. When I listen to this later, I want to write this, get me sure I've got this right. The beckoning mm -hmm. into the fullness of your life. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. You know, it's it's just so gorgeous. Thank you. I love that. It's interesting, too, when you describe your sense of call, that it was very much rooted in the Reformation understanding of ministry yeah. of all the people, right? I mean, Absolutely. we're all called to something. Yeah. It's just a matter of sorting it out. And some are called to ordered ministry and some are called yeah. to other kinds of ministry. And I, I think that's a helpful In this podcast, we primarily talk to ordained folk or ordered folk. And it's just a good reminder that 
life is a call, right? I mean, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, call to something. Yeah, I remember having a conversation about call stories, and they said, "Well, you must have heard so many." And it's true. I mean, as director of formation at VST, I did hear many, many call stories, but I've heard more call stories simply being in relationship with lay people my whole life, right? As a someone who sat on a pew, I've been on a pew a whole lot more than I've ever been in a chancel. So my community is lay people as well as it is my ordained colleague. And when people talk about their life of faith, those are call stories, right? Those are absolutely call stories. And they're following a sense of as you just said, Karen, the beckoning into the fullness of their life. And what was interesting for me is like to recognize that the dialect of that beckoning for me was these questions that have no right to go away, right? But for other people, it isn't that. I remember saying something to someone once about a longing and they said, why do you keep talking about longing? I've never had a longing for God. Like I've always had God. (laughs) Okay. So people experience this differently. So for some it's presence and for some it's joy and for some it's, it is a, an unquenchable longing, right? So, but whatever it is that pulls people in the direction of where they are aligning their life's activity and their life's purpose with the divine life, right? That is call. And yeah, I did hear a lot of call stories for people for whom it was true that that meant they were going to serve the church, right? Or they were equipping themselves for service to the church should the church call them to it. I find it interesting, this idea of the questions that go unanswered, Yeah, because it suggests to me, and knowing you, I, I think that's what you're actually suggesting, that like it's an unending quest, right? Yeah. I mean, our call goes with us from whenever we first become cognizant and then till the very end of our lives. It's, it really never is answered. Yeah, both the inner quest and the outer provoking, right? Mm. Like at one level, why would we be settled? right? It is an unsettling reality in which we find ourselves. And to be unsettled and to be questioning um, what it is to be human, what it is to follow one who said you will have fullness of life, right? What in the midst of all of how we find ourselves. Exactly, Andrew, I would say that's true. Yeah. So for me, this is a really interesting turn of conversation. And it kind of is going to lead us in in a few minutes to actually talking a little more in depth about the work that you've been doing that brought around undivided love, Janet. (laughs) But what I'm finding really interesting, and partly it's because I've changed roles since last season. I now work on the other side of, from the Office of Vocation, I work in pastoral relations, which is adding a richness to this process that Andrew and I are doing, because now we have a voice on each side of the table kind of thing. But what I'm really just caught with right now, and what I'm hoping here, people who listen to this will hear Janet, is the deep value of lay, a, a call as a lay person. As we talk about the struggle with declining numbers, closing churches, lack of clergy, you know, we have this mantra that's kind of passing through the church. And it feels like it's been, this mantra has been going on in the church for quite a long time. The church will never survive. Never enough, never enough, never enough. And yet what you are sparking in me right now is a thought of the power of lay call, lay in This call to, as Andrew said, the priesthood of all believers is, in fact, the salvation of our congregations Mm -hmm. if we can hold it up. If people can actually say to themselves, wow, I am called, there are these burning unanswered questions that drive me to serve the church. 
And so I'm finding what you're saying just like eye-opening and like, wow, we need to do more thinking about how we do this so that people in the pews can kind of say, yeah, actually my call story matters as much as that person standing at the front in the robes or behind the pulpit or with the mic. That would be my hope, honestly, Karen, with the book is that it would be a companion in the curiosity that leaders have about the faith of of their congregants, right? Should I tell you the story of the book? Like, yes, why would sure. why would anyone Let's why would anyone the, in their yeah. right mind write one? And so, it was an accidental book. I I didn't in, intend to write it in the same way that call comes out of community and out of conversation. So too did this project. So in no way did I pull this out of the air. I was part of uh, conversations, as so many of us are, who are involved in the church with our colleagues thinking about the future of the church, right? That has been the preoccupation for the length that the three of us have been involved in this. I went away uh, for a year. Our family was in Wales for a year serving a congregation there. And my uh, children were in high school and I was sitting in the manse for a year thinking, and I was still in conversation with uh, colleagues at, at home. And in one of my email exchanges with them, we were thinking about the challenges of ministry. And of course, the decline of the church was several years, arguably uh, decades ahead of the decline of the church in Canada. So it was interesting to see how the congregations were responding to that as a preview of coming attractions. I was in correspondence anyway with colleagues. And in one of the email exchanges, a friend of mine wrote something about the the future of Christianity, uh, futures of the church, and put an S on the word future. And that just sparked my imagination for thinking about more than one version of where we might be headed. And I don't know why that would be so novel, but we often do think of the one response, right? So it just sparked my imagination. And being interested in theology, I started to think about the dominant theological worldviews and which what would come out of each of those. And before the night was over, I had this grid on a piece of paper. So when I got home in 2013, Keith Howard was the director of leadership out in what was then BC Conference. And he had that grid because I'd sent it to a few of my friends and he said, let's test this out. So we had a, a day of a pilot conversation and we were thinking about various futures related to dominant theological worldviews, knowing that there are several held in the United Church. It was really fun, actually. I enjoyed the day. At the end, Keith handed me a piece of paper and it said, and this is to your point, Karen, it said, our job as ministers is to nurture the faith of our communities. Mm. And I said, oh, and he said, you said that. And I said, I did? (laughs) And he said, you said that. And that's what we need to do. So I scrapped the theological worldviews pulled out of the conversation as it stands 
and instead turned my attention to, if I weren't to describe the theological worldviews based on Bart and Tillich, if I were to actually describe them based on how people were living their faith in communities, that would bring this work closer to the ground. And so that was the turn. And so instead of putting up pictures of Marjorie Suhaki or whatever, I was putting up five different hymns or five different symbols or five different activities for people to align their inclination with in terms of what the lived theologies were. And they are, of course, related, but they are recognized. And more importantly, they are lived by how they're lived and experienced in communities rather than how they're taught in the conversation that is the field of theology. So that changed my work and it did bring it closer to the ground and it did give people not inadvertently, but it did give people, the lay people who were involved in those workshops, and I started offering those workshops, a sense of exactly as you say, Karen, an affirmation of their own faith, lived faith, not their private beliefs, but how they live their faith in the world as a nurse, as a teacher, however. So initially, what I was doing was providing tools for leaders for ministers to read their congregations because I'm still thinking collectively and that is my bias actually to think but the people who were at they didn't want to be read by their ministers thank you very much they want to, they want to do their own read right yeah, um, yeah. and uh, so the work shifted you know even closer to the ground then but it was initially really to engage leaders in a curiosity about the lived faith of their communities and whatever it is that they were mapping out with their boards or their futures committee or whoever was taking in hand, God bless them, the imagining the next chapter for their community of faith, whoever was doing that to give them a read of the congregation such that they were imagining a future that expressed the lived faith of that community that wasn't borrowed from some book. I was watching so many congregations in the early 2000s just pulling consultants off the shelf. And that isn't to say that the consultants weren't helpful and they weren't doing good work. Of course they were. But they were at times quite disassociated from the living faith of the communities. So that's where the work came from. So I was offering those workshops and COVID stopped the in-person workshops and leadership gave the church this incredible gift of the beautifully produced videos of those workshops. So people, wherever they were, could use that material and engage their own communities in having a conversation based on curiosity about one another and about the lived faith of their community. After those workshops people said, is there more? And I said, what do you mean more? And they said, well, could you at least write it down? 300 pages later, be careful what you ask for. (laughs) So I just want to say, I remember doing this in the OBC conference. I remember you presenting this, Janet. I've always enjoyed going to conference. I'm a church geek, you know, like I love the polity stuff. I, I love the gathering with my friends, all of that. That conference, when you presented your work at that conference, and we walked through that workshop together, that conference has been embedded in my brain ever since. I remember the energy around it. I remember walking into the room. So full reveal here, I'm a mystic. I discovered at your conference, (laughs) I'd always had these interesting experiences and I couldn't name them. 
And I discovered when you were leading VC conference in this process that I was a mystic, which is very interesting given that I'm a complete policy nerd and I, I'm order ministry. I should be in the ecclesiastical little group, but I'm in the mystics. But I remember walking into that room. I remember there was rooms all over the building we were in and they were all marked. Like you go here if you're in this stream, if you go here. And I remember opening the door and going in and standing among all the other mystics in the church and feeling like I'd found some home. And just to name drop, it was awesome because like Gary Patterson was there and I was like, oh good, someone else I know is in this room who's in leadership in the church and just kind of being very conscious that for lots of folks there was in that weekend together when we did all of that work folks found a home that was so different from just simply saying oh I'm a member of the United Church and that's my home community like there was a different home and it did give energy and so I love the title of your book being undivided love navigating the landscapes of living faith because when you think about the work initially when you talk about well there's five different pieces to the theological banquet that should almost make us think oh well she's dividing us up into groups and we're going to be pitted against each other but in fact my personal experience is that that actually pulled us together in a much deeper way because we could own who we were and so for that thank you you did name a fear that I had. I mean, as soon as you present some kind of grid like that with lines between categories and colors, it can go very badly. <laughs> and I was nervous about that. But in reference to my experience in offering these workshops gave me the confidence to do that event with 400 people because the overriding experience that people had in engaging this work was that two myths were exploded that we live under in the United Church. One is that we have no theology. And that was blown out of the water because very clearly that is not an issue. <laughs> we are, as Paul uh, Llewellyn said, uh, awash in theology. And that became evident uh, for people. But the other assumption that people were suffering under was that there was some kind of monolithic static set of beliefs that they were intended to have and that their own experiences and their own beliefs were somehow embarrassing and scarcely spoken of derivations of what it is they were supposed to know and they were supposed to believe. And that dissipated somehow when people had the courage to go to a table that best represented the way they live their faith, right? And they were always surprised, like you mentioned, you were surprised to see who was in, in the room with which you identified. People were sometimes moved to tears to get to a table thinking they were going to be the only one at that table. And there's a group of men and women that they have been in community with for years in their congregation, and they had no idea that was how they would best express how they lived their faith. So there was a great sense of affirmation of the diversity of ways we live our faith. The unique aspects of those uh, didn't make them substandard versions of Christianity somehow, you know, and that Christianity isn't something out there, but it is how it is lived in any community at any time. 
It is a living faith and people experienced that. And I think that's where people got the, the sense of vitality wasn't something I was doing. It was something they were experiencing among themselves. People want to talk about their faith. That's why they had a good time. <laughs> that's why they had a good time. <laughs> so. I think Janet, the book is, although we've been working on it and thinking about it for a long time, it's particularly timely now because we live in a time where our understanding of unity is about overcoming. So overcoming all differences into some kind of one defined way of understanding whatever is that at issue. And we talk about diversity a lot, uh, certainly in the United Church, but I don't think we fully engage it in the sense of particularly on the diversity of ideas, right? It's very difficult for us in the United Church to hold the notion of living with and accepting and celebrating diversity of ideas because we want then to overcome the diversity. And I like the image of banquet, certainly a deeply biblical image, a celebratory image, an image that everybody who's ever been to a festive table can, can enjoy. Where did that image come from? I wish there were a really profound theological and biblical reference I could make, but here's really what happened, Andrew, is that Keith called it the theological buffet because initially we were thinking about how the problematic of choosing a theological worldview that aligned best with the congregational expression of faith. Anyway, I didn't particularly, I don't think Keith would mind my saying this, he knew I didn't like buffet because it gave the sense of picking and choosing. By the time I really put my foot down that I didn't like buffet, it had been called buffet for maybe two years. And so we weren't really able to change it very much. <laughs> and so we obviously, for the reasons that you have just mentioned, like the what the word banquet invokes in a Christian community is everything we wanted to say, right? It is the place where people come together. It is the place where we're fed. It is the place where there is conversation and exchange of ideas. And it is in Christian theology open. It is radically, radically open. So for all the reasons that the word banquet is a beautiful word. I was really happy to have it associated with the project that we were working on. So much better word than buffet. I mean, I think when people like Thomas Bella talk about a buffet of Christian beliefs as if, you know, you could just choose some from everything and kind of mesh it all together. But this is not what you're talking about. The other thing I think that's really helpful is that in reading about the various pieces of the banquet table, it's a bit like Myers-Briggs in the sense that our theological understanding or worldview is not chosen so much as it's innate. So, we're led to it rather than choose it off a buffet because there it is and it, it looks appetizing. Exactly. Um, and that's the discovery of our spiritual journey, right? Is finding that place where we are innately within us anyway. Exactly. Exactly, Andrew. Thank you. And that is the important difference between a buffet and, <laughs> and a banquet. You mentioned Myers-Briggs, and I think too of Enneagram, right? And I think of Enneagram particularly because in Enneagram, you find what's innately true 
of for you and your own spiritual life via negativa, right? By way of its undoing. And that was really an important piece of the work as well, to look at the shadows of each of these streams of faith. And people readily were able to find the truth about their own edge and their their own shadow. And that's important for the work of living with diverse ideas, as you said. The self-knowledge is critical to the ability to show up to others, right? It's critical. We practice being unalike. We, we practice our diversity by any means, you know, and it, this is about the a diversity of ideas. But what we learn in wrestling with that is applied in other places. And so I really uh, appreciate that you mentioned that piece. And I do go there at the end of the book, that if we l- can learn to trust, which is a mental and cultural shift, but not a spiritual one, our faith helps us with this, actually, if we can make the shift away from our trust in what is uniform, and trust instead, in what is pluriform, mm. then we have what we need for the next piece of work for living with the diversity that is our reality. So if this work goes any distance to doing that, to giving us a chance to practice that, uh, a chance to let go our confidence in in what is held in common and learn to lean into to difference and trust that we can be a we made of difference, then we've come some distance, I think, to what will be demanded of us, not just in the church, obviously, but in the world. Yeah. As I think about your book in relation to, you know, you mentioned earlier, Janet, that there was a period in the church where there was kind of everybody was looking for the consultant who would save them, mm-hmm. right? We were all looking for the savior. Our bookshelves, our, our bookstores, anywhere that church people access books just seem to be this plethora of if you buy this book follow it to the letter you will save your congregation what always struck me about those works was the lack of acknowledgement that stuff happens it doesn't always go right and what we're actually seeing is the final polished product like we don't see the corners being knocked off of the diamond or the stone or whatever right and I think what I your piece, your work is pointing us towards, and I encourage folks in congregations who are wondering about their future to dive into Janet's book and the videos. But just something you were saying about the plurality is there is so much unknown about ourselves. And that in so many ways, you give us permission to be unsure, because you acknowledge the shadow side of who we are, you acknowledge that it's not perfect out there. And having had folks come to me in congregations and say, we should all read this book and it will be really great. And getting people to acknowledge, yes, this book's wonderful. And I'm really impressed by what this person has done, but this is not us. Mm -hmm. Whereas what you are coming from that more, who are we? What is it that we need to be? What is it we are called to? And that's what I appreciate. And and it almost feels such a big shift in that kind of literature for churches around who can we be and how do we envision a future? For me, it's a big shift. You know, that's a piece that I would encourage folks who are listening and thinking, what is it that our congregation could be doing? Dive into Janet's book, folks. That's all I can say is dive into the book, head into that uncertainty and that shadow side and find yourselves. 
Well, it is a, I think I use the illustration in the book. It is a, at least an attempt to show us ourselves. I think people will, as you say, recognize themselves there. And always, like the metaphor I used was a picture that my nephew took of our extended family one Thanksgiving, where we're all standing together looking into the mirror. So he took a picture with the phone, all of us. And and it was such an awkward thing. Like, why would we be standing there staring and looking at ourselves? And it is awkward, actually. And it is uncomfortable to read ourselves. But we're reading ourselves alongside the community that we are a part of for a reason. Like, this isn't a self-help anything. This isn't about the self. Even the shadow pieces are not about the self. I mean, self-awareness is critical in leadership and in life, but it's written for the collective exercise of being a community together. And so we learn to see ourselves alongside others. And even the shadow work, we learn that our shadows aren't ours to fix. It turns out that we need one another. And I think that's true. I absolutely believe that's true. And we need only look really at the image in which we were created is a community. It's a a oneness made of difference. So. So Janet, one of the questions that remained unanswered was the thinking about the material in the book and working it through and doing the research and then finally getting the book out. So now what? What unanswered question are you going to work on now? <laughs> you know, when you start your a piece of work in the middle of a conversation, you can fully trust the conversation continues when you put your pen down. Like this really is just a little moment in a long, long conversation. Theology is obviously the oldest conversation we can be part of. And so it's just a moment in that. And it is a moment in our work in the United Church as well. I mean, these conversations continue and hopefully they continue with the S firmly, (laughs) firmly in place on futures, on communities of faith that we won't be monolithic, that we will be able to imagine pluriform and diverse ways of living our faith. And so the conversation continues. I want to stay in the conversation that that inspired this book. And I really, really enjoy working with communities of faith and their leaders who are taking seriously what it means to be communities of faith. We are so often really burdened with our identity and responsibility as church. And it's very energizing to think as much about faith as it is about church. Well, thank you, uh, Janet, for being with us today. To our listeners, the book is Undivided Love, Navigating Landscapes of Living Faith. And you can get this book at the United Church Publishing House. And uh, if you listen to the end of the podcast, you'll receive a promo code and you can use that and go out and buy the book and delve into it and enjoy the banquet. We're glad that you were here, Janet. Thank you both so very much. It's lovely to be in conversation with both of you. And so that's it for this edition of It's Your Call. See you next time. Bye, everyone. For spiritual resources to be used in a group or individually, shop United Church Bookstore at www.ucrdstore.ca. Listeners of It's Your Call receive 20% off orders over $45 with the discount code YOURCALLING.